Our gospel lesson this day comes from the 8th chapter of Mark, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, maybe one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake And for the sake of the gospel, we'll save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Eternal God, we thank you for this day. Lord, may we be challenged and inspired by the stories that have gone forth and in your word proclaimed this day. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sometimes the lectionary gets it right, and it really got it right today. Who do you say that I am? But before that question is asked, there's another question Jesus proposes to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do people, not you, but who do people say that I am. And I'm sure if I were to ask any of you, who do people say Jesus is, you could probably give a hundred different answers that you've heard over the course of a lifetime. Neighbors, friends, who is Jesus? Jesus was a really nice guy who told really good stories. He treated people well. He was awesome with children. Lots of different opinions and commentary about who Christ is. But the question soon turns, who do you say that I am? You, not someone else, you. And I think if we're to be honest and if we're asked that question, there's probably a slight pause 
And I think there's a slight pause because we know deep down at our core that the way we answer that question shapes our identity. And the reason why we pause is because we know if we live from our identity, an identity of following Jesus Christ comes a great responsibility. Following Christ shapes our being and our doing. That's what mission is. It's both of those things. It's being and doing. In preaching, it's generally not an acceptable practice to use ought language. And some of you have probably heard it before, right? When the preacher gets up and says, you ought do this, you ought not do that. That's generally not considered okay to do from the pulpit. But I'm of the opinion that, that today some ought language can be used. You've heard it said, be careful what you ask for. In this situation, we ought be careful how we respond. Peter says, you are Savior, you are Messiah, you are God. When we make that confession, everything changes. The scope and breadth, the purpose and meaning of our lives is different. Because we confess it's no longer about us. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words in The Cost of Discipleship. They're troubling words, but words, I think, that have great merit. When Christ calls a person, Christ bids them to come and die. That's the invitation. It was only after Peter's confession that Jesus began to let them in on what he was really doing and why he was here. You see, I'm sure there was a lot of guesswork, right? They had followed Jesus and they had seen all that he had done and the way people treated him and the way he treated others, and I'm sure it caused rampant speculation. Who is he? Why does he do this? Why does he talk like this? How was he able to do this? But Jesus begins to teach them after Peter's confession that he is God, that he is Messiah. Jesus begins teaching the disciples what it really means for them. He taught them this because he wanted them to truly understand, to truly understand what it would mean for them and what it would cost them to follow him. In a sense, you could say he was teaching them the cost of discipleship. If we say that Jesus is Lord and that he is Messiah, we then accept his mission, we then accept his call to go where he leads. Easier said than done. Jesus says to follow me is to deny yourself and go where I go. The Greek word for deny, aparneromai, used in this context in this particular passage is used in the most emphatic way 
the most emphatic way this, this verb can be used, and it means literally to repudiate, to disown, to disregard. So if Jesus were to say that today, he said, if you want to follow me, you want to be a Christian, disown, repudiate, and disregard yourself. That's what it means to follow me. Are you willing to do that? We've said it before, we ought to be careful how we answer this question. The way of the cross, the path of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, it's not the path of least possible resistance. It's not a comfortable path. It's not a path in which we get to keep everything and only giving a little bit. It's a path that costs a great deal. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? We have to be real careful and think about it before we say, you are God and I'll follow you. I think it means something for us today, here, now, at Canyon Creek. I have served in five other congregations prior to coming here. And one thing I have learned is the one sure way to evaluate a congregation's missional effectiveness is to look at that church's financial commitment to mission and to youth. To say it in a less fancy way, how much money does a church give to mission and youth? We can look at a church budget, any church budget, and you can tell a church's priority. Look where the money goes. I remember in doing research and getting ready to, to come here and I remember when Gail Anderson called me the first time, one of the very first things I did was I just looked on the website, and i got to be honest with you, I really didn't look for much discipleship. I didn't look for play. Well, play wasn't really a thing. Like, why would we hire this guy for discipleship? He didn't even know what he was getting into. No, I mean, I didn't look there. What I looked at was where's the church doing mission, and what's the youth ministry look like? That's what I looked at. Everything else came later. But that would tell me everything I needed to know about this place. You see, during the summer, you sent missionaries. Let's call them what they are. They're not volunteers. It wasn't a field trip. It wasn't a sightseeing. It wasn't religious tourism. You sent and equipped missionaries who represented the Church of Jesus Christ at Canyon Creek. And we are all thankful for the adults, the youth, the commitment, the sacrifice that everyone made to see that people were served all around the world. Each of you could have probably been somewhere else this summer, right? You could have but you chose to answer the call 
to go and be a witness for Jesus Christ. Thank you for saying yes. Now, while it would feel all just wonderful and fun to stay here in this moment, I wish we could have pictures and songs and special speeches every Sunday. We can't stay here. Because what those missionaries did this summer, wherever they served, was what they did was they set the bar a little bit higher for all of us here. The bar has been raised. You've heard the stories. But what's left for us now as a congregation, as church leadership, is to now begin to start asking questions. We must now ask ourselves, what is God really preparing us for? It takes a lot of resources to pull these things off. And I know sometimes it just looks like it just happens. But there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of time off, a lot of sacrifice, and yes, money, the buses, the take our youth places, the airline tickets, they cost something, wish they were free, they are not. It says something about who you are as a church, that you had the vision and the resources to pull it off. That is very much to your credit. But I couldn't help but thinking in preparation for this message as I was writing, that gentle whisper that always happens just when you think you're onto something and when you think you're smart, that gentle whisper that says, remember to whom much is given, much is required. Perhaps now is a good time to consider where God is calling us next and to whom God is calling us. I'm not sure we can fully answer that question in this moment right now, but the answer lies somewhere in our response to Jesus asking us the question, who do you say that I am? And are you willing to go where I go. And in that response comes another question. Where do we see Jesus? Where do we see Jesus? Again, we ought to be careful how we answer this question. Perhaps it's somewhere in the words of St. Patrick, Christ in the heart of every person who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that, he, that hears me. The being part of mission. If we are willing to serve Christ where Christ is, we must Always be ready to engage Christ in our midst in those little moments. Show of hands, how many angels have you met? I won't get all Presbyterian on me. You can raise your hands. How many angels have you met? Okay, all right. We're doing good. We're about average for 
church, mainline church. All right. How many of you have seen Jesus? Encountered Jesus? Raise your hands. Don't be, there you go. All right. I saw that in my peripheral. <laughs> well, St. Patrick said Christ behind me, right? <laughs> we probably encountered him a lot more than we realize. And I think it's safe to say as just ordinary human beings, we've, he's probably walked away from encountering us sometimes like, wow, they've got it. And maybe some other times he's walked away he's like, man, they just don't get it. We've seen Jesus sometimes, right? Maybe he was that person holding the sign on the corner asking for help. Or maybe Jesus is sitting next to you now. Or maybe he came in earlier but no one greeted him. And he just decided to go elsewhere. Maybe we've met him in that parking deck on those late night mall excursions. Those slow steps we take to our car, but then when we see the young person with baggy jeans walking behind us, we walk just a little bit faster and clutch our purses just a little bit tighter. We've encountered Jesus more than we think we have. I was not on any of the trips. I was jealous, I'm not going to lie. When I saw that bus and all those youth with those bags, I was like, man, they look like they're just on a mission. I wasn't on any of the trips for the first time in a long time. But what I can glean from the conversations I've had with people that were there, with people who were in relationship, who were in conversation, who were in service with and to, And what I can tell is that each of the people who have come back from one of these trips had an encounter with Jesus and those that they served. And I'm not saying some figurative or some pie-in-the-sky fancy spirituality. I'm talking about you can tell when they tell the stories and the energy and the passion that they encountered the risen Lord. Remember his words. He said it. What you have done for the least of me, you have done for me. You have done for me. Our action and our inaction and the service and love of others speaks volumes of how we answer the question, who do we say Christ is? It's a tough passage, I know. But in it, there is just a light that cannot be avoided. It can't be. Yes, there's loss. Yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, there are trying times. But Jesus says, if you go, there is life. There is life. As I was thinking of how to close this message. I, this week, I just someone's name began to, to just beat on my heart. You know that situation where someone just pops into your mind for no good reason? And it happened this week. I got in touch with a family in my last congregation with whom I developed a, a really close relationship with. They're about Brandy and, and, and my age. 
and had a beautiful daughter a few years ago. And you could tell from age one to age two, age three, that there was just something different about her. And we've been in that situation. You know if you can just, if, 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 some, if some, something or someone just sees difference, you know that awkwardness where you know what's there but you don't really want to acknowledge it and you find yourself in that eerie gray place? That happened church-wide. And so it was so much of a concern that the parents began to, to, to get her tested for all manner of things. And after spending thousands of dollars on tests and after going to all these different doctors and nobody could find anything, they finally did <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> some genetic testing and it was discovered that she has a rare genetic mutation. Um, there are only about 20 to 30 cases in the entire world. And I remember awkwardly going with them when they told me, they sent me the text message and said, we found the diagnosis, would you mind dropping by? And I remember the awkwardness because of some of my own story. Erin was very sick when she was born. We didn't know if we were going to take her home. And she was with other babies in a NICU. And I'm not sure who, which of those babies made it out of the NICU or not. That's something that haunts me every single day. Especially when I have to go visit someone and offer pastoral counseling. When I am so completely awkward in those conversations. And she shared with me what was going on. And I said, how do we want to communicate this to the congregation? And she says, oh, we've already drafted a letter. We do not want our child treated any differently. Our daughter is a child of God who is loved by God and claimed by God. And she is a true light that has taught us more about faith in the face of adversity. She is our preacher. And after we said a prayer with this, this little lump of just gooey goodness leaning on my leg, we said a prayer and she smiled. And I said, I, I, I got to ask you, I said, I thought I was coming to do something. I feel like I was completely ineffective or that I wasn't needed. But what was clear to me in that moment, and I said, how are you getting through this? She says, Jesus. That's the being. That's the being. It's because of how her and her husband answered the question, who do you say Jesus is? Are they able to now find purpose, a new sense of meaning, and a mission? She is out there. She's going to London next year. They have a blog, Tough Like Taylor, look it up. They're raising money. She's connecting with other families in this country whose children are afflicted. There are a few cases in the United States. And they're meeting and they're talking about what to do. In this 
sense of difficulty in this weird place, they have found purpose and mission. And she will tell you to this day, because I called and asked her if I could share about it, and she said, we have found life. Who do you say that I am? If I were to ask someone on the summer trips, I'm sure they would tell you that they aren't the same people that they were when they left this campus. And it's probably safe to say that the people that they encountered are not the same either. When we follow Christ, we both lose and we gain. We find ourselves. Jesus is so worth following. So worth following. And it's in our following that we find life and we bring life every time. I close with the words of Elsa from Frozen. It's time to see what we can be to test the limits and break through. We are free. Let it go. Let it go. Amen.